Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heavens. Lo, it is better to be patient than arrogant, for the end of something is better than its beginning, not because your toil has ended, but because the reward for patience is wisdom and understanding. So admonishes the preacher's eulogist, who shames us with the preacher's labors, goading us with his instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and this fear is a man's duty during his brief season under the sun. Remember to keep this commandment, for God will bring every deed into judgment, whether good or evil. This week's episode brings our 12-week series on Ecclesiastes to its conclusion. But don't worry, we'll keep turning the pages with you on this podcast for as long as we can, God willing, until the Lord comes. Until then, turn, turn, turn. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 82 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We have reached the end of Ecclesiastes. We've been reading a book talking about the end, and we've finally come to the end. And I have to say that Shakespeare has nothing on the preacher. This poetry about death in the opening of chapter 12 has an apocalyptic feeling to it. It evokes concepts that I think ultimately emerge as the notion of the Lord's coming in the broader biblical narrative. I think he's created something that is, in terms of language and poetry, quite beautiful. The death of this individual also feels like the end of time. Yes. And that's what I think the Bible is always playing on the death of the individual and the end of the world because as you've said many times one's death is the end of the world for that individual absolutely the day of peace in paul's letters is the end of the road it's the day of judgment it's your last day it's a very interesting and important play on language and it's a very practical play on language because then you circumvent all of this philosophy about when the end of the world is coming, and you begin to realize that the immediacy of the metaphor of the kingdom in the New Testament pertains to the brevity of your days upon the earth. I had a professor who used to try to criticize Paul by saying Paul and Mark and all of these writers really thought Jesus was coming in just a few hours. And look, he didn't come. I think that's a very shallow reading of the text because it's nuanced literature, it's metaphor. When Jesus says, some of you are standing here who will not taste death until you see the Lord coming in power, he's referring to his own death. Now, that might not look to you as though he's coming in power, but that's your problem because your reference for what is powerful is backwards. So it's always a play on language. 
And that's why nothing beats the Bible. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. This is playing off the end of the last chapter. Remove sorrow from your heart. Put away evil from your flesh because childhood and youth are vanity. Don't be so nostalgic of your childhood that you forget that childhood also disappears. But also remember the creator in the days of your youth, how the creator created you as a young being with strength and vitality. But, you know, eventually you do get old and decrepit and you eventually don't enjoy getting out of bed anymore. I read verse 1 also as an interesting play on eternity and temporality. At the moment in life when you think you don't need the Lord because it feels and seems as though you're going to be around forever, that's the moment when you had better remember the Lord because your days are as the grass of the field that will perish. If a young person can remember the Lord, it's linked to remembering that there is an end to their life and it will infuse their youth with wisdom. Now, while you can delight in your life, take advantage of it, use the strength that the Creator Correct. has given you before you come to a point where you have no more strength and no more vitality. This is the preacher's answer to the famous expression, which I'm sure has been regurgitated by many cultures over many centuries. I don't think it's a modern expression, but you know this proverb that youth is wasted on young people. I think that concept is about as old as dirt. And I think this is the preacher's answer to that statement. Let me show you how we won't waste your youth by remembering the one who gave life to you. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and clouds return after the rain. So beautiful and majestic, the way he's talking about the end. In the day that the watchmen of the house tremble and mighty men stoop, mighty men are brought low. Everyone is humbled, in other words, by the coming of the Lord. I'm inserting New Testament language, but we're talking about the day of death. The grinding ones stand idle because they are few and those who look through windows grow dim. And this is all an image of a great reckoning, but is also an image of old age, trembling, stooping, no longer able to grind, your sight through the window growing dim, both the old age that comes upon the individual and the apocalyptic vision of all life coming to a standstill. So there's something interesting here at work with the language. And what's nice is that for once, the play on language in the Hebrew seems to be reflected in the English, maybe by chance, but it's still interesting because it works really well. We know that in English, in slang, the word grind or the act of grinding can be used as a euphemism for sexual intercourse. What's fascinating is that's also true in Hebrew. You were saying earlier that this verb, tahan, in Hebrew, is also used in Job. Job 31.9, he says, if I've defrauded anyone, let my wife grind for another one and let another bow down to her. Which is graphic language. It could, yeah. There's a double entendre that could be very graphic. That's interesting because if we're talking about death, he's saying the ones that are trying to make life are now standing idle. So it could be about working at the mill. It could be about procreation. I mean, we're not sure, but these are the kinds of interesting questions you can explore 
when you deal with the text as literature and you try to explore how these terms are used elsewhere, should also be noted that when Matthew is talking about the end times, he also talks about this act of grinding at the mill. In that case, he says there will be two women at the mill, one will be taken and one will be left. And then it seems literally about grinding. There's no suggestion of any euphemism in Matthew's usage, but what connects Matthew to this text is we're dealing with the end times and this abrupt end to everything. And anyone who's lived in a place where you don't go to the grocery store for your own bread, this is one of the most basic acts of life anyway, grinding grain, because grinding grain is what you need in order to have bread. In order to have food, you need to have bread, the most basic part of the meal. So whether it's talking about sex or talking about literal grinding of grain, they're both about giving life. And the doors on the street are shut as the sound of the grinding mill is low, and one will arise at the sound of the bird, and all the daughters of song will sing softly. The quiet that comes upon a town, and you know, you can always tell when you go into an old town, a small town in the Midwest, in the U.S., for example, it's mostly old people. It's very quiet. Life begins to dim. You start to have less and less lively signs of life in the town. But there's a bit of a dig here, I think, against civilization that environmentalists would love. Because as man fades into the background, as the city and the town become as though they were always vacant, the world keeps spinning, but man's days don't. The Lord made creation, and the Lord preserves creation, and we hope that he would preserve us but we know that the world will keep spinning after we're gone. It's very powerful language expressed with eloquence and a kind of nuance to it that makes it even more forceful. Furthermore, men are afraid of a high place and of terrors on the road. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags himself along, and the caperberry is ineffective, for man goes to his eternal home while mourners go about in the street. Even when you die, even when you're afraid of what might kill you, nature, like you just mentioned a moment ago, continues on. The mourners who come to the funeral eventually go back to their regular life. Remember him before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed. The pitcher by the well is shattered and the wheel at the cistern is crushed. All of these implements of man's activities and man's labor upon the earth go to waste before all these things are beyond repair, beyond use, and disappear. Remember your friend. Remember man's days. Recount them. He's talking about the end, but also talking about how precious it is to remember someone before they're gone. Value every moment of your life. You're going to die before this silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed. These things that we have that are very precious, these eternal kinds of objects that are supposed to live long after us, these monuments that we make to our hands and to our own creativity, these things are eventually going to disappear themselves. We're going to be gone long before they disappear, but even those are going to disappear and be crushed. And in verse 7, you'll see it's tempting to imagine that he's setting up a kind of dualistic anthropology, but there's no dualism, there's no anthropology, and there's no Hellenism in scripture. That's my bumper sticker. I want that on a bumper sticker, Richard. Can we get that printed? Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Okay, let's be clear. The dust here is the dust of Genesis, and we've been hearing about Genesis 
all throughout this text, every time we heard the word vanity, which is a reference to Abel, the vanishing son of Adam, with whom God was pleased and who died an ignoble death at the hands of his treacherous, murderous brother. But here he says, the spirit will return to God who gave it. This is not a platonic soul. We are not talking about an ontology that goes back to some monad in the universe of eternal forms. We're talking about the breath of God that animates dust. If God can give life, he can take life away. That's what this means. This image I love because it undoes Adam. Adam was dust from the earth plus God's breath, his spirit. And here, the dust goes back to the earth. The spirit goes back to God. Adam is unmade. Because life is in the palm of God's hand. I want to stress this. The reason I am borderline obnoxious in my critique of Hellenism and Platonism and dualism is because this idea that the individual exists as an individual undermines the biblical matrix. It undermines the whole system. Hellenism is telling you that you are a god and you can become a god and you are a reference, you are an individual. It's a gross oversimplification of pagan philosophy and religion. But from a scriptural perspective, that's exactly what's happening. And that's what idolatry is. Ultimately, idolatry is not about the stone you're worshiping. It's about the worship of self projected into the stone. It's not just about whether people have statues. There are all kinds of things that you can project your ego into. I think that's why in the early church, for example, they were a bit uncomfortable with theater. You know, you hear the common pastoral explanation that, well, they committed real murder in theater and there was abuse in the Roman theater of Christians in the beginning. And so you hear all of these explanations. But I don't think that's the only reason for people's anxiety about theater in late antiquity. I think that because theater was a place where these horrible acts were committed, there was an intuition that theater is about voyeurism, and voyeurism is very much related to the problem of idolatry. Because if you look at a statue and it doesn't say anything, because it's just a hunk of stone, but you believe it's speaking to you, you're projecting yourself onto the statue and then listening to your own reflection. It's a feedback loop, which is unto destruction. And you think about this problem of idolatry in the context of Ecclesiastes, it is vanity of vanities that you're looking at a statue and expecting an answer and getting one when we know it's being projected by your ego. And your ego is going back to the dust. And should God withdraw his spirit, you are dust until such time as he decides to breathe in you again. I think it's a very important point. And that's why in our tradition in the Eastern Church, we say, may his or her memory be eternal. And we are asking that the Lord would remember the one who has turned back to dust. Because if God doesn't remember them, there is no them. It's fundamentally different. It puts us completely in a position of weakness before the Lord. There is no ego at that point. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. Speaking of vanity, you know, this is something that obviously keeps coming up and a theme that we keep discussing in the podcast. And my own thinking has developed during the study of what vanity means here. And vanity, as it's used in English, is something that you put energy into that's really incorrect. You're so vain. You probably think this song is about you. You know, you're putting all this effort into something and 
it makes you proud. Someone who is too vain is someone who spends too much time thinking about their clothing. Oh, clothing is vanity. It's really not what the point is. That's what we think of. That's not really a good thing to put your energy into. I think the Hebrew hevel has a more poignant meaning, which is that it doesn't last. It's a puff of smoke that's gone. And this is why I think it's different than English, because what is vain is that there's something morally wrong. If you're a vain person, you're putting all your thought into how you look or how you sound or your image, right? This is different than what it means here. What this means is that it's all going up in smoke. Even the wise person, even the giving person. Mother Teresa is vanity of vanities, just as much as Donald Trump is vanity of vanities. Everyone is vanity of vanities. All the work that Mother Teresa put in, it's vanity. Why would you say it's vanity? Because it's a puff of smoke. It's hevel. That's what it is. It's not vain in that it's bad, but it's vain in that there is no point that we can see. That we can see, and we touched on this in the last podcast and it bears repeating. We don't know how the actions of any individual factor into the tapestry of God's creation and what God is doing and how God is managing everything from the Alpha to the Omega. And we will never know. That's the vanity we cannot grasp. That's why when people try to say what's going to happen to American history and they try to draw comparisons between the history of the American Empire and the Roman Empire or the Egyptian, whatever, there's a limit to the value of those comparisons because it's impossible for an American living today to understand where they are in the history of the United States. We don't know. The U.S. could end in two weeks. The U.S. could end in two centuries. The U.S. could be like the Roman Empire and the Byzantine Empire and be here for another thousand years. We can guess, but we are not in a position really to say what's going to happen. And if you look at how the news cycle works and how people get so apocalyptic about events that are iterative and passing and limited in scope, Each time they come up in the news cycle, people talk as though it has this apocalyptic implication, and then they forget about it in a week. And I think the same has always been true of human discourse. The inanity and foolishness of the American news cycle is not something new. It's simply an amplification of the foolishness and the stupidity and the folly of human discourse. Human beings have always believed that what's happening to them, when it's happening to them, is everything. But it's not. No, in fact, it's nothing. It's a puff of smoke. But it can have impact, but not in ways that we'll ever be able to perceive from our vantage point. That's the key. The butterfly wings on one side of the planet begin a hurricane that comes into being on the other side of the planet. Every human being is that butterfly flapping its wings. How that affects the rest of the world is completely beyond the ability of the butterfly to understand. And the butterfly's life is only a few days, and then it's gone, and then it literally becomes dust. And this is what human beings are. Human beings, the puff of smoke, let's think of it poetically as the beat of a butterfly's wings. Maybe it causes a hurricane, maybe it causes absolutely nothing. Someone said this to me at my father's funeral, and it was the most beautiful thing anyone has ever said to me. She was talking about how beautiful the service was, and she loved the Arabic chanting, and she said to me, Abuna, it was like a butterfly hovered over your father's coffin and there was stillness and it flew out from the church out into the world. 
it was so beautiful and so eloquent what this woman said to me. And I think it reflects, on the one hand, the passing nature of those moments, but it doesn't take away from the potential gravitas of those moments. Because this image of the butterfly flying out of a still church out into the world, well, everything is just completely immobile. You know, everything is just standing still for that one moment in time. It is passing, but it has impact. And anyways, that's... That reminds me of the song of the birds singing softly, as we saw in verse 4. Exactly, exactly. In addition to being a wise man, and here we have a change in voice, the preacher is doing his last riff on the whole matter. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity like we had at the beginning of the book. And if he would have been buried with a tombstone, that would have been what he said and what would have been inscribed in his tombstone. The way John Chrysostom is said to have exclaimed, glory be to Jesus Christ, with his last breath, the preacher here in the book is saying, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And now we have a change in voice. And someone else now is talking about the preacher. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. And he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. And the actions here are important. He was not just a wise man. He didn't sit on a chair and everyone say, oh, look, you can tell he's a wise man. No, he taught, he pondered, he searched out, and arranged proverbs. The important thing is he did, and he collected, and he assembled, and he did something. You know, uh, so much of what we've discussed is about the work that human beings have to do. It's tedious. It's backbreaking the labor that human beings have to do. At times, the preacher said it's better just not to be born because what good comes of this? Maybe just a relief from time to time, but the work human beings have to do is enough sometimes to just make you wish you weren't alive. And we can see that while he wasn't plowing in a literal sense, he was doing the back-breaking work of assembling wisdom. He wasn't sitting around being wise. He was acting in a wise manner to offer something that is wise to others. I can almost just continue your thought with the text itself. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. And I love this word correct. One of my favorite expressions when I'm teaching scripture, especially to young people, is that one has to understand the importance of being a correct person. And this is a different understanding of truth than the kind of truth that postmodernists like to talk about. The word correct is an offensive word to postmodernists, but the preacher here is trying to be correct, and his frame of reference for what is correct is Torah. And the world, as it has been ordered by God, as it is written and expressed in God's Torah. The words of wise men are like goads. And masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. Right. I love that even though he wasn't a literal farmer with an ox on a plow that he would have to goad, hit with a stick with nails on it, he didn't do that literally. He did that in a figurative sense. He assembled all these wonderful sounding proverbs and put them on a stick to goad the unwise 
to go and get their work done, go and do what needs to be done. These are nails that are supposed to spur you to action. They are given by one shepherd. There's one source of this wisdom, and he collected this wisdom so that there would be a shepherd who would get you moving in the right direction. This is why Paul prefers the Romans over the Greeks in the New Testament, because the pedagogos in a Roman household comes with, as Paul says, a rod to make sure that everyone is moving from point A to point B as instructed. And you have to imagine children walking in a line from class to class in a Roman household, and somebody wants to step out of line to go play in the field, and then out of nowhere comes the pedagogos, whack! And you have a little smart on the bottom of your right foot, and you know, I can't turn right, and I can't turn left, because I am headed on the path to this destination, which is unto instruction. And this obviously is how Paul views the journey from the day of grace to the day of peace. You walk on the path, the odos, you don't step out of line or I, Paul, will come as the pedagogos and smack you. And this is the same spirit here in this text. Right, from the shepherd's crook to the ruler of the nun, this is the way that you keep the people in line. Absolutely. And not just keep them in line, But when it comes to human beings, this is one of the tools, one of the instruments of teaching. And that's what's essential here. He taught the people knowledge. So his teaching is what we have. But beyond this, my son, be warned. And the word here in Hebrew is very interesting. It comes from the root zahar, which in Arabic and in Syriac means light or bright. It became a word for teaching because it's enlightenment. We have this in English. Enlightenment is teaching. And so I wouldn't translate this as be warned, but be taught, be enlightened, understand. Beyond this, my son, take note. To give instruction, to teach, is to give warning. It's not that the notion of warning is completely absent from the term. It's that our understanding of teaching is different than the preacher's understanding of what it means to teach, or in this case, the person speaking about the preacher. There's something very serious about giving instruction when we know that everything is vanity. Look, it's a goad. It's a nail and a board. My wife grew up in southwest Idaho where teachers still had paddles in their classroom. Right. And this looks horrible to the modern American because kids are supposed to feel good about learning. That's how they learn. Whereas here, learning is a goad that's supposed to push you away from what you feel like doing into a path of wisdom. And this is the point of the preacher's work. The preacher did not assemble these sayings so he would have a nice book that you could put on the coffee table with nice illustrations. He's doing what every good church school teacher should do when you sit together as a class and the kids are squirming because they think it's too hard and they don't want to be here. He's reminding them that your teacher had to struggle with the endless work of writing books and had to struggle with the burden of devotion to books because it is wearying to the body. It's no joke to be a scholar. It's no joke to study Torah. It's no joke to be serious about the question of meaning from the perspective of Scripture. It takes effort. And the preacher spent his life. We just reached the moment of the preacher's death. The preacher's gone now. He's been slaving to pass on this wisdom. Don't waste it. That's the warning of instruction that is being given here. I don't think it's coincidental that we're given this ominous instruction 
And then immediately after, you have the wisdom of Solomon. So at the end of this text about the vanity of the individual, we are given the opportunity now, understanding how temporary we are and how short our life is, to do something about it and study the wisdom of Solomon. The preacher talked about excessive work as someone who knew what excessive work was, putting together these sayings for the next generation. He's dead. He went up like the puff of smoke that he was. But what's significant is that these words remained. This book remained. The next generation is the only one who gets to enjoy the fruit of this. That's why it's beyond this, my son. There's often the word of teacher to student as father to son. So he says, my son, realize putting all this together and the devotion it took to all the experimentation and all the learning that he put himself through, it's not a joke, like you said. And so what are you going to do with this, my son? It's way more breathtaking than individualism. Individualism is telling you, you're such a reference. You're so special. It's all about you. This is your time. This is your life. You, 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 you which we know is baloney and malarkey because anyone who looks at how the created world works knows that the individual, as the preacher has been saying, is temporary. But the fact that you're temporary makes the keros in the New Testament, which reflects the time that we're talking about here in Ecclesiastes, the moment, that much more urgent. So you are being primed now. It's not that what is done doesn't matter you don't matter but the time that god gives you the short time he gives you definitely matters for god or else why would he have given it to you in the first place the spirit the breath of his mouth that he breathed into you is his breath and god unlike you does not waste his time and is not temporary so what are you going to do about your life what are you going to do about the gift of god's breath and this is the son of the text this is the listener who chooses to listen to these words and chooses to act accordingly and realize that you have very little time, that you're simply a breath, and when God inhales, you're gone. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. Because the Lord who made the heavens and the earth, the Lord who gives life and takes life away from each individual who walks upon the face of the earth, everything is held in the palm of his hand and everything defers back to him. And this is what is meant by it applies to every person. Everything is under the purview and the scope and the dominion of the shepherd and the one who gave life. And you keep his commandments because you're under his rule you're under his sovereignty what he demands of you you do and then you disappear for god will bring every act to judgment everything which is hidden whether it is good or evil because only god is the one who has the perspective to see how it all fits whether it's good or evil human beings are not capable of understanding whether this is good or evil. The butterfly cannot figure out how many times he needs to beat his wings to create a hurricane or whether he should beat them to the east or to the west. 
human beings cannot understand this eternity that God can understand. And so you can see, hearing verses 9 to 14 in context of the entire narrative, how this is not an addition, as some have argued erroneously. This does not jut out of the text as something that doesn't fit or was somehow added later on. This does jut out of the text as an epilogue or a eulogy that, as you were saying earlier, pertains to the death of the preacher. I like that you said eulogy because I was thinking eulogy that oftentimes in modern eulogies, it's just kind of anecdotes. That's what a eulogy is in modern context. Whereas a true eulogy is the good word from that person. What was the teaching? How do we sum up his life, her life, as something that we can now do? What is the teaching then that comes from that person? I think verses 9 to 14 are a perfect template for what a sermon at a funeral should be. It is a reminder of, in this case, how the preacher's life was dedicated to scripture and a warning that the burden of the preacher's dedication places accountability on those hearing this word at the assembly gathered to honor him. You better do something about it, otherwise his life is dishonored by your laziness, your sloth. All the work that he put into this is then wasted. And remember, in honoring his life by not wasting his work in service of God's instruction, you also make your life count, which is very important. And also remember that if you squander the sacrifice of the preacher and dishonor his offering, and in doing so squander your own life, remember the Lord is coming and you will be judged. Any funeral service in which the eulogy does not reflect this wisdom, in my view, falls short and consigns the one who has died to the dust from which they were taken. This has been a great series. I really appreciate having had the opportunity to work through Ecclesiastes with you. And I'm looking forward to what comes next on the Bible as Literature podcast. I'm very grateful that we've had this opportunity to look through this book and understand this book, how it's all vanity, but we do our work as an offering which may or may not outlast us. And may the preacher's wisdom be honored and proclaimed until the Lord comes. Take care. Amen. heard the bible as literature thanks for listening the bible as literature is a production of the ephesus school network